0: This conversation on COVID 19 is made possible by Discovery. Hello, I'm Alec Hogg, and welcome to episode 62 of Inside COVID 19. This episode, a glimmer of hope as the virus's attack rate starts to fall in the Western Cape and may be stabilizing in Gauteng and the Eastern Cape. We'll have an insider's view from ICU specialist Dr. Vespina Demopoulos. We'll also hear from the owner of a 500-seater restaurant. He is one of 2,000 KZN businessmen who've banded together to fight Suntum on business interruption insurance. And here's some good news for South Africans looking for a previously unaffordable, luxurious holiday in the bush, as we hear from a high-end game lodge that's offering bargain rates to offset the loss of international tourists. Inside COVID-19, Trumpers News. South Africa's coronavirus mortalities rose above 5,000 on Sunday, with the unfortunate milestone offsetting some good news that the 85 reported mortalities were the lowest of any day since July the 4th and well below last Thursday's record of 216. Erratic reporting, however, tells us it's far too early to draw any conclusions from the data. South Africa's new daily cases are being reported at between 13,000 and 13,500, That's down slightly on the peak of 13,674 that was set on July the 9th. The country's net active cases, however, are still rising at around 5,000 per day and at Sunday's 168,000 put South Africa as the fifth highest country of any in the world. Here's more detail from Dr. Ron Whelan, Chief Commercial Officer at Discovery Health. As we go into another week, start another week run of this COVID pandemic, it seems as though the situation in provinces outside of the Western Cape is now accelerating and getting a lot more difficult. What feedback are you seeing?
1: Yeah, certainly interesting times, Alec. In fact, the very latest numbers. I mean, let's start with South Africa first. South Africa's trajectory continues to remain serious and concerning. Globally, we now have the fifth highest total number of infections, which is a concern. The only countries ahead of us are the U.S., Brazil, Russia, and India. So that's a a concerning number. In addition, our attack rate remains one of the highest globally. So the attack rate as of this weekend is 22, 22 new infections per 100,000 population. And as I've mentioned previously on the show, Europe peaked at 10 new infections per 100,000 per day. So we double the attack rate at which Europe peaked. Um, Our attack rate is also higher than Chile and Brazil at the moment. At the same time, it's around about the same as the the U.S. On a South Africa basis, unfortunately, things are not looking good. What is looking promising, however, is, as we mentioned previously, is that the Western Cape is still on a downward trajectory. So as of this weekend, the Western Cape's attack rate is 15.8 per 100,000 population per day. And you'll remember that the Western Cape peaked at about twenty-four. So it's down off significant peaks and has maintained this trajectory now for the last six weeks or so. So that's really, really promising. In fact, on a compound daily growth rate, the Western Cape is tracking at about 1%, which is very good. What we've also seen, and it's very, 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 really signs, and I you know, want to caveat it as such, is the last three or four days have looked a lot more stable in Kauteng and in the Eastern Cape. So the last four days. Fartang has been tracking on about 5,000 new infections per day. That's a big number. But the good news around that number is it doesn't seem to be growing. So we're watching those numbers very closely at the moment, and we're certainly hoping that Fartang now starts to, to taper off and plateau. And we're seeing a similar number play out in the Eastern Cape as well, northwest greater lesser degree as well. On the other side, Free State and KZN are tracking upwards. It just seems to be the trend across South Africa. It's been the Western Cape and the Eastern Cape and Gauteng and now the next two provinces in the mix. But Ron, that's quite
0: good news given that the Eastern Cape and Gauteng are highly populous areas, particularly Gauteng, and that if they have already started to plateau – is this aligned with what happened in the Western Cape or are the attack rates, as you say, maybe just unpack that for us as well, what the attack rate means. Are the attack rates in those two provinces still growing?
1: The attack rates are flattened, admittedly at a much higher level than where the Western Cape flattened. So as I mentioned before, the Western Cape flattened at an attack rate of 23.9 new infections per 100,000 per day. Kharteng is up to 33 new infections per 100,000 per day. So it's uh, about 50% higher than where the Western Cape was at. But what we really look for is for the, these rates to start flattening at some point and then you know, ideally to start declining. That means that you're starting to see less, proportionately less new infections on a daily basis. You know, and it's not eating into the population as much as, as it would have been previously. The Eastern Cape is at 27. These numbers are very, very high. Let's be honest about that. But they've got to come off at some point, and uh, at least they don't seem to be rising. We'll have a much better indication over the next three or four days or so, but fingers crossed we're headed in the right direction.
0: Why are they so high? When we first heard of what was going on in Europe, it was frightening. And yet, from what you're telling us now, the infection growth in South Africa is even higher.
1: The reality is that we're working in a different environment in in South Africa. Often this happens in highly densely populated areas, and the virus obviously spreads from one person to the next. So we're very dense in in many areas in South Africa. I think secondly, remember, Europe's attack rates were recorded in a lockdown environment. So when Europe was, was starting out, it was largely lockdown across Europe. You'll remember South Africa's infection rates when we were in lockdown we were extremely low. We were low, as low as your South Korea at the time. Um, so our attack rates are in a very different environment to what Europe was in when they were recording their attack rates. What is interesting about our attack rates is that they're almost identical on a national basis to the U.S. at the moment. Uh, so the U.S. is also tracking that around about 20, 22 new infections per 100,000 per day. And you can see that the U.S. economy is largely open again. People are about their their business. So we're seeing quite similar trends across the U.S.
0: That's still relative to the 100,000 people, that it's a percentage of, very small. What happens here? You're a medical doctor. Does everybody get sick? Is that when the virus ends or do only some of us get sick?
1: Yeah, I think you're pointing to this point around herd immunity and uh, lots of debate happening around herd immunity at the moment. And yeah, the principle around you know, herd immunity is that the virus has relatively less opportunity to attack, to pass on. And obviously, if more people have already had the virus and are immune to the virus, then the virus has less opportunity to be passed on. That's called the susceptible population. You know, so in actuarial models, I'll, I'll speak about the susceptible population. A susceptible population is a population that the virus can then go ahead and attack. You know, people have got antibodies, you know, through herd immunity, through immunity over a period of time, but it eventually frizzles out. Inside COVID nineteen from Biz news.
0: The last time we spoke with Dr Vespino-Demopoulos was in April this year. Well, Vespina lots has happened since then. I know you're on a number of committees. You're very close to what's going on with COVID-19. And as an intensivist, you would have been seeing it from a very front row seat. How are you guys holding up?
2: Hi, Alec. Thank you so much. We definitely are in a different place than we were two, three months ago. It's been very difficult for everyone, but we keep going. My colleagues have been absolutely fantastic. Everybody's been trying to help each other, and it's been amazing to see.
0: When we last spoke, it was early days, and you were warning how important it was that PPEs or private protective equipment was used by people in the medical front line. It looks like that message must have gotten through because the mortalities haven't been of the kind that one feared.
2: Yes, absolutely. It's been amazing because in the hospital, the um, doctors have been fantastic with their PPE and we're only sitting with 3% of healthcare workers being admitted. So, yes, what's happening more is infection in the community more than in the hospital.
0: And how are you seeing that increase? I've had the first friend that I know who's passed away due to COVID-19 and... I'm hearing other people as well having similar stories that something that was so far away is now very close to home but but you seeing it up front what's happened for instance on your your admissions
2: yeah so definitely the number of admissions related to covid disease have increased remarkably Throughout the ICUs, basically, we are full with COVID patients. So before, I mean, we'd have one or two in the ICUs. Now, every hospital has got three or four wards full of COVID patients. And most patients in the ICU are COVID positive, mainly adults and, yes, COVID positive. So there's definitely been a huge increase in the number of admissions related to COVID. The other admissions have decreased because we're doing less elective surgery. People are scared to come to the hospital But yeah, mainly COVID has filled the hospitals, private and state.
0: And are the facilities holding up?
2: So for now, I think we are, especially in the private sector. The state sector is a bit difficult. I mean, I don't work there currently, but just discussing with colleagues of mine, they're definitely running out of base and they are opening new wards. But for now, we feel okay. And there's certain facilities that have opened up, you know, like NASRAC and in the Cape, there's other facilities that are opening up. So for now, we're okay, but I think we're almost not okay if you understand what I'm saying
0: getting close to capacity
2: yes so we are getting close I mean there have been times where there have been no ICU beds for patients in the last couple of days I sit on one of the groups where intensivists around the country have been asking if anybody's got a bed because they've run out of beds and this was in the private sector we're reaching them
0: how are you seeing this going forward
2: so I think, Alec, it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better. Especially in counting, I think we're going to peak for a bit longer and then hopefully get better as colleagues in Cape Town are starting to breathe a little bit now. So I we've still got another month or two where it's going to be a bit hard. And then hopefully we'll start easing off. The concern is that there have been places in the world that have had second and third peaks. So we have to be careful for the future. What we're doing in terms of doctors around the country is just trying to make sure that we have space for everybody. Ideally, if we can just space out everybody getting sick. I know that sounds strange, but that's even what we're discussing as colleagues. We're like, you try not to get sick for the next few weeks because there's no beds. The way we're seeing it, just to answer your question, is that there's probably going to be another month or so of a difficult time in Gauteng and that Cape Town is probably going to start turning the corner now, but we don't know what's going to happen in terms of the second and third peak. It's obviously worse because it's winter in South Africa, and that makes it also a bit worse. We're all trying to stay positive, Alec, and I think the healthcare workers in South Africa are just so amazing. They're just trying so hard.
0: But if there's no beds already and infections are rising, doesn't that Mm. tell you that things are going to get pretty tough now or have you been able to plan for this or has anyone been able to plan for this?
2: Yeah, so we've been able to plan in some places. Saying that, a lot of private healthcare are getting into doing a lot of home monitoring. So oxygen at home, a doctor coming to the house and putting up drips and giving dexamethasone and that kind of stuff. So what we're trying to do is get the patients in for a little time when they're critical and then move them out so the other patients can come in. But in some other institutions, they're not as fortunate. It's very sad to say that I think parts of the healthcare industry will be okay because they have backup plans, they have made space. But some other areas, I think, are not going to be okay. And I think we're going to have some situations, like they were in the Cape, where patients are coming and dying in the casualty because they won't have a bed. I mean, some of these field hospitals that have opened are hopefully going to help, But as you know, there was a problem with oxygen and things like that. Yes, the private sector is doing a lot of home, trying to do a lot of home care. In the state sector, we only have, you know, one or two field hospitals. So we are concerned about that.
0: You mentioned dexamethasone. Is that Mm. plentiful? Is that freely available?
2: Mm, Yeah, that's great. Yeah, quite cheap. And there's quite a lot of it. So we're okay. We've been using it in ICU for a very long time for many, many diseases. So we're quite comfortable with dexamethasone and that fortunately there is a lot of dexamethasone, so that shouldn't run out.
1: Inside COVID nineteen from Biz News.
0: Duncan Heafield is the owner of Belazar Restaurant in Mkhlonga in Durban. And Duncan, you are on the rampage. Not surprisingly, you had business interruption insurance, which Suntum is not paying. Now, we did interview the chief risk officer from Suntum a couple of weeks ago. And his view is that the insurance companies are not liable. The government is liable because COVID-19 isn't the reason why companies like yours have had to close. It's the government's lockdown It's quite exasperating for those of us watching from the outside, but when you've got a business that's been directly affected, of course, it's a different story.
3: Well, Alex, I think you're absolutely right. Belazar is a 500-seater restaurant on the Nschlange Promenade in Nschlange, and ourselves and approximately, I would say, about 70 other restaurants in Nschlange itself have all got business interruption insurance with various insurers. And when all of us started putting in claims, obviously, when the government put us into the self imposed quarantine, we started getting repudiation from the various insurers. I put in a claim against Samsung, Old Mutual, Hollard, Godress, I can name all of them. We call them the offenders at the present moment. But they all have come back and repudiated our claims based on the fact that they're saying that the lockdown was not caused by COVID, it was caused by the government. So, in essence, they're telling us that, and there was a motivation given for it as well, issued by time specifically, to say that the government had other options to follow other than the lockdown. And they used Sweden as an example, and they used other countries that didn't enforce the lockdown. In fact, they used the only two countries in the world that were exceptions to the whole world vision of doing a lockdown. So effectively, they were telling us that we had other options and we had other ways of not closing our businesses down, which would mean we would have to defy the government and continue trading in order for us to be able to claim legitimately for a claim from them during this whole pandemic, which was just a bizarre state of affairs.
0: I think in Oklahoma you've had some very interesting incidents already that we've seen on social media of people being arrested in their homes for going to the beach, for instance. So you can just imagine if you'd opened your restaurant, the cost the cops would have been all over you like a rash.
3: The cops have been all over us like a rash since the day of lockdown. In the last few days, the cops have raided a restaurant with a claim of alcohol being served and removed the angostura bitters, which is the stuff that you use for rock shandy, from the restaurant, saying that it was alcohol that was being served to customers. It's just been a bizarre set of affairs right from day one.
0: What does your broker say about all of this?
3: Our broker says that we are 100% in the right and our broker said that we are a hospitality business and we specifically chose a hospitality policy which was looked at, it was briefed at, it was specifically designed to meet the needs of the hospitality industry during this period of time. The other issue, which is the main point of contention, is the infectious disease cause, which is in our policies. And in the sometimes policy, which I'm sure you've seen and I'm sure read, it says that if there's infectious disease or notifiable disease within a 50 kilometer radius and is deemed so by a local authority and your business is closed as a result of that, you are covered in terms of your business interruption insurance. Sometime has now changed that and they've now gone into various different ways and jargon, explaining that it had to be on site. But our question is, why would you put a 50 kilometer radius in a clause in your contract if you intended it to be on my premises of my restaurant and was sold to me in that respect? Duncan, Um,
0: just to take it forward a little bit, clearly if every single one of the businesses who had business interruption claims were to take the insurance company to court, they could probably wait you out. Have you joined with others in a class action?
3: Yes, we have. In the beginning stages of this whole situation, I obviously sought counsel to go on against Santam on my own back, um, on the advice of my broker to have a look at this. And I went and had consultations with various senior counsel in Durban and specifically insurance specialists that look at policies and deal with the insurance industry. And the original opinions they gave me were that my contract and my policy with Santam was almost clad tight sound in that they owed me the claim that I was putting forward. And then obviously a lot of the other hospitality institutions in Mischlange and Durban started reaching out and through our own internal networks, we found that I'm not the only one, there are hundreds of them out there. So WhatsApp group started and eventually we started looking for legal firms and people to represent us. But the problem with the legal firms is that it costs a lot of money. Take it sometimes, or any of the insurers to court, and as you said, they can string us out for ages. It costs a lot of money to be able to take each of us individually on. There's a matter in Cape Town that just took place where I think Guard took on an individual restaurant, and the courts I think, awarded the costs to the plaintiff. But it cost the plaintiff a lot of money to get to that stage. And with the restaurants being the beleaguered state they are at the moment, and not only restaurants, the hotels, the bed and breakfasts, the coffee shops, the bakeries, the list just continues, is they didn't have the money to each individually go and fight sometime, which Santa might have to do, and that might be their strategy. So we approached R&B attorneys, and on a contingency basis, they agreed with the assistance of the senior counsel that have given them advice that to represent us with the five main insurers individually and to try and litigate the insurers in precedent matters. So in other words, not only in the case of the Cape Town matter where it was related to one specific restaurant versus an insurer is to go more on the principle of what is it, they call it the declaratory order and have that as a much wider, broader stroke, which would have benefit for many more of us than just one individual restaurant. Inside COVID-19,
0: Crumpus News. The tourism industry has been hit particularly hard by the COVID-19 lockdown. The Tourism Business Council of South Africa has estimated that the industry is losing 750 million rands a day and that many jobs will be permanently lost. As South Africa's borders have been closed, no international tourists are allowed to enter at the moment. Amid this, a new super luxury game lodge, Cheetah Plains, was launched by businessman Yapi van Niekerk. Van Niekerk told Linda van Tilburg of BizNews that lodges geared for the international market are struggling and in the meantime South Africans can benefit as he is one of many reducing rates for locals to keep the wolf from the door.
4: You know, the decision was made three years ago so to to build the place and it's a new concept. When you say lodge it's not really a lodge like in the traditional lodge where you have a dining room and eight rooms you know we have joint facilities it's a different kind of concept we weren't brave you know because who in the world could foresee three years ago that we're gonna have a international lockdown an international pandemic this caught the whole world by surprise it's not something that anyone could foresee even a month before you know we heard about about it the first time it's affecting tourism all over the world. International borders are closed up to very recently. Provincial borders were closed. But our market is an international market. We're not really a South African market. Although currently we are, um, marketing for the South Africans at so discounted rates and, you know, uh, just to get some expenses paid and try to keep as many jobs as possible open at, at Cheetah plants in the industry. Um, how badly are you affected by it? No, in the worst possible way. We have zero, uh, 100% of our business is the international tourism market, up market, international tourism market. And like myself and uh, and the big names in the business, London Lowsies and Githos, Alliance Sands, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, We're all basically mothballed our businesses. We can't trade. no international. Uh, travels. I've got uh, very wealthy friends from uh, from Russia that wanted to come. Can I own private jet. They'll fly, fly straight into Caribbean International from Moscow, and uh, they are well connected. I gave them the Civil Aviation authorities, application contact person. They just blocked everywhere. They said under no circumstances will they allow any tourism travel into South Africa at all. So no, it's been very badly handled, I think, by the South African government. I think their decisions are sort of a, a blanket uh, decision and I think that if they start applying their minds, they can really allow limited international travel in a very safe way. Our market that we serve is usually the guy, the capital, the family that flies in with their own private jet. They will fly to Privy International and then we will pick them up, a smaller airplane or a helicopter to take them to cheetah planes. They still have to go through customs and immigration, unfortunately, that they have to do. But again, you know, social distancing, limited contact is there. The the correct protocols, wash your hands, sanitize, social distancing, all that, um, uh, you know, can be done. And we can easily put those things in place uh, to prevent the spreading of any coronavirus. And anyway, we will recommend to our clients that three days before they depart to do a corona test, and to have that case with them on hands. And uh, that's what we do with our staff, basically on a very regular basis. We all go for tests regularly to make sure no one's got the virus. And how do you survive? Did you keep all the people on that were working for you? We've got wonderful staff, you know. We obviously had to break the news that we won't be able to pay our full salaries and try to keep as many jobs as we can, cut our expenses to the absolute minimum. And, you know, for, for months now I've been... Feeding cheetah uh, plants from my other sources of income, which fortunately I do have. A lot of my colleagues in or businesses in the industry, they only have tourism as their income, and they are battling, and it's very, very hard. You know, the Banks are breathing your neck. You know, we can't pay the bills. It's just a zero income. You know, when there's zero income and you've got fixed expenses, what do you do? I've looked at your website, and normally you would advertise a—is it for four people? Like 118,000 rand a night? That is a super luxury market. What are the yeah. people in that market doing at the moment? Staying home, I suppose. You know, there's light at the end of the tunnel. We are well booked for next year, which is fantastic. I think everyone in our market wants to come to the bush as soon as possible, and sitting at homes you know whether it's in america whether it's in europe whether it's in in the middle east or the east there are lockdowns everywhere to some kind of an extent but uh, our clients have in the travel industry the feedback we get is that the clients are desperate to get to, to the bush and they can't wait for the borders to open is there a bit of a silver lining at the moment for south africans you said you lowered your rates for local people We have some uptake, not a lot. Like I said, that just keeps it from the door. The silver lining for South African travel is, if I'm a South African, I would use this opportunity to come and visit this super luxurious places which normally the average South African cannot afford.
0: This has been episode 62 of Inside COVID-19. The full interviews of the highlights that are featured in this podcast are available separately on the biznews.com website or app. Thanks for being with us. I'm Alec Hogg. Until tomorrow, cheerio. This conversation on COVID-19 was made possible by Discovery.